1: Aime Sheldon's Second World War novels explore how war impacts family life long after the guns have stopped firing. Writing them realised a lifelong dream when the first in the series, Eleanor's War, won the Benjamin Franklin Award for Best New Voice in Fiction, and now she's publishing the sequel, Don't Put the Boats Away. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Ames talks about the challenge of balancing personal dreams and family life and why she loves the creative process. But before we get to Ames, just a reminder, the show notes for this Binge Reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Ames' books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And just a reminder, we'd love to have your comments. Please tell us what you think on the website or the Facebook page. And remember, leave us a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Ames. Hello there, Ames, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you, Jenny. I am thrilled to be able to talk with you. It's just
1: a real pleasure. So tell us all, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that fiction was writing was the thing that you, you had to do? And if so, was there a catalyst for it?
2: Yes, there was. Uh, it all started with the fact that I love to read and When I was nine years old, I was reading Stuart Little by E.B. White, and I loved that book so much, I thought, I want to be a writer. So I proceeded to write a story, a short story, a long short story, and continued writing stories and poems ever since I was nine. Um, I wrote a couple of novels, one of them, um, neither of them published. I, I spent years trying to get one of them published in and out, <laughs> out to publishers and editors and back with comments, rewritten out again, did that for, uh, quite a number of years. Um, and then I stopped, uh, Throughout my adult life, I've had jobs that involved writing, uh, but nonfiction writing. I was a newspaper reporter, an academic writer, um, a grant writer for a university, for the Minnesota Historical Society, for the Minneapolis Public Library, not all at the same time, (laughs) one after another. Um, And I thought this was a way I could keep my writing tools sharp in terms of being able to express my thoughts. Um, This work helped my fiction in that I got used to getting feedback, getting criticism, revising and revising and revising. (laughs)
1: Sure. And did that first novel that
2: you've mentioned,
1: did that ever – evolved into the ones that you later published or was it something completely different?
2: It it was something completely different and actually it is the book that it it is, I hope, going to be my third published novel. Um, I had discovered a developmental editor along the way with my current novels and um, I worked with her to rewrite it and I am currently querying um, agents and publishers about that novel. And I, I'd be happy to tell you more about that novel, maybe at the end or or now, <laughs> whenever you wish. No, I think at the end, we'll concentrate on the ones that you've you've
1: been publishing so far, and that will be your work in progress, I think. So that very first one that you managed to get published and, and wonderful that you, you've stuck at it with such um, determination. It must have been thrilling that you won the Benjamin Franklin Award as the best new voice for that first book, which was Eleanor's Wars. And I must... When I first saw that title, Eleanor's Wars, I just automatically, my mind jumped to the fact that this might have a connection with Eleanor Roosevelt, but in fact, it's a different
2: Eleanor altogether, isn't it? That's correct. Yes, it is a different Eleanor. I I lived on Eleanor Avenue when I was writing that book, and I was looking for a name that would be appropriate for the era, and I came up with Eleanor Sutton. Yeah, no, it is, it is obviously an
1: appropriate name because it follows the story of an American family in World War Two. And actually, the one that we're going to be focusing on more today, Don't... Um, don't Put the Boats Away. Don't Put the Boats Away, sorry, yes. Yeah. It's, it's almost a sequel, but this first one traces an American family in World War Two and the things that happened to the people that stay at home as well as the ones who go to serve. So Eleanor's Wars was a very
2: appropriate title. What drew you to that story? Well, the answer is a bit complicated. Um, My uncle went to boarding school during World War II. He was at Andover in Massachusetts and when it came time for his fiftieth reunion from Andover, he wrote and performed an operetta of songs about his experiences at boarding school. A few years later, one day as I was walking on a trail in the in the North Woods of Minnesota, wondering what's my next novel going to be about, I want to write something. All of a sudden, the inspiration for Eleanor's Wars descended on me in a flash. It occurred to me to write a novel that would bring my uncle's boarding school songs to life. These songs really grabbed me. They still do. I have a tape and I listen to it over and over. They reveal so much about the trials and longings of an awkward, bright musical boy who doesn't really fit in. He's not an athlete, he's not a scholar, he's not a ladies man. So the first draft of Eleanor's Wars took a character named Nat Sutton from boarding school during World War II through his next 40 years. But then, once I completed the first draft, I hired a professional editor to give me an assessment, and he said I'd done a very good job of writing a young adult novel that could be published, as it was. But he knew that's not what I had in mind. I thought I was writing a book for adults. He said the characters were very nice. They were too nice. There wasn't enough tension. Not enough happened. Basically, he told me that my book was boring. (laughs) I I needed to challenge my characters with difficult situations that they would grapple with and and learn from. So, So then wondering, okay, how do I make this more interesting, more challenging? I started thinking about the fact that this, his story, his experience occurred during war, during the war, World War II. And looking to increase the tension and so on, I decided to focus more on the war. I shifted the focus away from Nat and centered it on his mother, Eleanor Sutton. I made her an ambulance driver during the first World War And I gave her such horrific experiences that she never wanted to think or talk about that war again. Her past is riddled with secrets. So war and secrets and making the reader wonder who's going to learn which secret when, that helped to create a lot of tension.
1: And that's interesting because Nat comes into book two very strongly. He's one of the
2: main characters in the second book, isn't he? Yes, and he's the other protagonist in the first. Uh, the in, in Eleanor's Wars the two protagonists really are Nat and Eleanor, whereas in uh, Don't Put the Boats Away, the protagonists are Harriet, Nat's sister, and Nat.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, did you publish independently at the end of all of that long process? Or did you find a traditional publisher?
2: I I did publish independently. I I, I tried to find a traditional publisher for Eleanor's Wars. Um, I sent queries out to 90 agents. Wow. One responded, um, and she recommended that I work with a developmental editor. There, she said there were things that she really liked about it, but that it needed some work. And would I work with a book doctor, as she called it? So I did work with a book doctor for a year, rewriting the manuscript. And and then um, then the agent said, okay, now I have something I can sell. And she sent it around uh, and sent it around. the. University of New England Press the editor there wanted to acquire it but then after months of back and forth uh his board decided not to relaunch their fiction line so then i learned that my agent specialized in cookbooks <laughs> so oh, what kind of you know led me to wonder what kind of context she had anyway at that point i started looking at small presses I was sure there was an audience for this book, so I pressed on and finally found a local publisher here in the Twin Cities, Beavers Pond Press, and worked with them uh, to independently publish Eleanor's Wars.
1: Look, that's fantastic. And then you went and won that award with it. Did that feel like some validation for those years and years of,
2: of actual dedication and belief in the work? Absolutely, absolutely. It it took me 15 years from the time I had the inspiration about Eleanor's Wars and what to write about between that and receiving the award. 15 years. So, yes, it was the culmination, really, of decades of writing and dreaming and work and hoping. Look, it's lovely because there's probably
1: people listening who are in that Stage of having had a dream like that for years and possibly doing something about it but not quite knowing where to go next. So it's a, it's a lovely story to encourage others to pursue
2: their dream, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, perseverance, I think, is the name of the game.
1: Yeah, so... Eleanor, as you've mentioned, is, is a nurse in World War I, and she's the mother of a son who volunteers in World War II as well. So we're not going to give away any spoilers here, but those two books together really do trace one American family from World War I right through to the coming to the end of the 20th century, don't they?
2: That, that's right. Exactly. Um, Eleanor's experiences in World War I had a huge impact on her and her husband and her children. It changed all their lives. And the repercussions lasted, well, for their entire lives. The uh, Don't Put the Boats Away ends in the early 1970s. Uh, but it does, So it does cover about 25 years beyond World War II. Yes, yes, but you didn't initially
1: promote them as a series. When I picked up "Don't Put the Books Away," I, the boats away, I don't think I realised that effectively it was part two of Eleanor's Wars. Did you did you regard it as a sequel at the beginning, or did did it sort of shape up that way as you went along?
2: Actually, I I always regarded it as the sequel. Um, That very first draft of my novel, which covered 40 years, um, when I I was in a writer's group and and, uh, the leader of the group at one point said, finally, you have more than one book here in this manuscript. Uh, Why don't you finish the first book first? So Eleanor's Wars was the first book. And then Don't Put the Boats Away, is is the sequel. Absolutely. Um, and the writing of the sequel went much faster, as you might imagine. Yes. Because I had a first draft. Um, I had characters, I had settings, I'd already done a bunch of the research. Um, I was in a very helpful writer's group. So that that book only took me about three years. Um, the reason it's not promoted as a series is that I didn't use the same publisher. So with Don't Put the Boats Away, the publisher is She Writes Press, whereas it was Beavers Pond Press before. She Writes Press, uh, when I said to the publisher, we should talk about this as a sequel, shouldn't we? And and she said, well, no, because um, it's it's not the same publisher it's the covers won't look the same they won't look related and i didn't really agree with her but i felt i just i mean i you know i'd signed on to work with her so um i think when uh i reprint it uh when we do a second printing i'm hoping to put on the cover that it is a sequel uh the sequel to eleanor's wars so that that's obvious to people I I certainly communicate it in all of the publicity that I can. Um, The fact that it is the sequel to Eleanor's Wars, I think, is buried in Don't Put the Boats Away on the last page with my writer's, you know, the author bio. I think the last (laughs) sentence there talks about Eleanor's Wars. So um yeah that, that's been a little bit of a challenge. I definitely think of it as a series. On the other hand, Don't Put the Boats Away is the end of this story, as far as I know. Maybe I would write a prequel to Eleanor's Wars, but I'm not sure that I will. Uh the the third book I'm thinking about is is very different.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. Now in Don't Put the Boats Away, you do tackle quite well, probably most of the red Button issues of the mid twentieth century, women's rights and sexual politics, and uh, you you know you you go into people like Betty Friedan and the men, gay men who are sort of very quietly thinking about coming out. Those sorts of um, themes are in the work through the characters of Eleanor's children, Harriet and Nathan. Um, was that fun to do? I suppose some of that was personal experience in your own life growing up.
2: That that's absolutely true. Um, I, I I like uh, involving hot topics because to me it makes it more relevant. And to to have a historical novel uh, that that is sort of ringing relevant current bells to me um, that that's a nice way of. Providing some perspective. Um, in Eleanor's Wars, the issues are war and refugees and bullying and homophobia. And then in Don't Put the Boats Away, as you say, sexism, um, alcoholism, PTSD. Um, I'm, I'm hoping um, through addressing some of these issues to illicit compassion from my readers for people who suffer from some of these situations, from mistreatment or being misunderstood or being disrespected or being condescended to.
1: Yeah, and it sounds to me, having read some of your um, bio online and, and having you heard you talk now, that the character of Harriet, one of the key things for her is the balance of her personal dreams to to have an independent life and realise um, work goals with the balance of family life. That's something that you've probably addressed yourself very regularly through your life. I think would it is that would that be
2: right? Yes, that is definitely true. Um, you know, I, I, I was married to an alcoholic and. Uh, That marriage ended when our daughter was four years old. So I was a single mother for 14 years and I had to earn a living and take care of our home, take care of her. So I had to stop writing for a number of years. Uh, Once she hit adolescence, I was able to get back to my fiction writing on a part-time basis. But it wasn't really until I retired that I have been able to give it my all. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I think you've also been involved in a monumental historical project about women's records. Is that right? And I wonder how this
2: influenced the fictional work. Yes, it had a lot to do with that. Um, So in the mid-70s, 1970s, um, at the University of Minnesota, I was involved in a project where we were tasked with identifying primary sources having to do with women's history. So letters and diaries and minutes of meetings and so on that could be found in research libraries, manuscript collections, historical societies, places like that. And women's history at the time was a a new concept. It was a new discipline. Uh, So it took it took a lot of doing to convince all of these repositories of historical records to go back into their collections and reconsider what they had there and to tell us about them. So it was, it was very important. Um, It was a very important project. It was kind of a groundbreaking project and you know, the past can have a huge impact on the present before that. Documented history was a way to celebrate men, the accomplishments of men who were leaders in military, religious, political, economic fields. The men who wrote history up until the 70s didn't think to mention the roles that women or slaves or peasants or colonials or natives played in establishing the cultures in which they lived. And when women were left out of recorded history, the implication was that women had no history worth recording. As a result, women have been robbed of the heroines and role models that could help show them possible new paths for themselves. So writing stories about valiant, talented women is my way of inspiring women to be everything they can imagine. So this, this big historical um, academic project really inspired me to write fiction about women, about to tell some of the untold stories of the lives of common women, of ordinary women who, to me, seem to be heroines.
1: Look, that's so interesting because I, I, at a very similar time, did a history degree, actually, and... As I was sort of coming to the second or third year of that degree, and I realised that we were only really studying political and institutional history, as you say, that was made and about men. And I thought, if I was going to go on and do a master's in this, I would want to be looking at social history. I would be wanting to look at completely different aspects of history. And at that time in where I was living, it was really not even considered a serious master's topic to try and tackle issues like that. So I just walked away from it. And it's been very interesting to me to see in the last decade how women's stories, historical stories, have just blossomed in the fictional area, which, and I think it's, I mean, it is happening in history as well, but I think women are finding their voice in fiction even more, perhaps, well, alongside history, parallel with the academic histories these days, I think, you know. I mean, one of the women that I recently interviewed was Georgina Clark, who's an an ordained Anglican minister who's writing mysteries about a noble woman in in England in the um, 1750s, I think it is. 18th century, who um, is forced into prostitution. Wow. And it's, <laughs> that some of these women are tackling quite confronting stories and making really good fist of them so you really understand where those women are. And, and, and then she isn't a victim. She very definitely is trying to forge a life for herself despite her circumstances. So it's just so interesting that the whole arc we've come on over the last... Um, 50 years, I suppose, in terms of where women are
2: today. I agree. It's it's very interesting. And thank goodness for this these changes. Yeah, that's right. Um, books
1: about the Second World War in particular are enjoying quite a boom at the moment. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about why that might be.
2: Well, yes, I have had thoughts about that because I certainly was... Have been attracted to World War II books. I mean, that's why I said Eleanor's Wars during World War II. I mean, that's part of it to me. Well, I was born in 1948, so uh, World War II still seems pretty recent. Um, and it's you know, it's the last war where everyone in the Allied company countries, sorry, the Allies were working together to defeat evil. Um, Everybody was on board with this war and it's maybe the last war where that has been the case Um, Because more recent wars have been much more uh, Well complicated I guess Uh, not so black and white Um, I I think uh, Right after the second world war those who were involved, especially those who were really part of the action, who were fighting, who were, you know, the soldiers, the nurses, people like that, they didn't want to talk or think about what happened. It was so traumatic. So for a long time, there was silence and not many books about the war. But once the decades have, have gone on, um, as the last veterans are dying, I think family members ask questions, uh, the last veterans start talking more about their experience. Uh, there's a lot of curiosity about such a seminal time in our, in our world's history.
1: Yes, yes.
2: Did anyone in your direct family, was anyone in your family directly involved in the Second World War? Yes. Well, my father was in England. Um, he had a administrative job because he could type. So he, he wasn't, um, uh, he wasn't in the midst of the fighting, but he, he was at an airfield. And so he saw, you know, colleagues, uh, buddies that he'd gotten to go off in planes and not come back. So he actually had some PTSD even just from that experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Turning to your wider career, you've had a very full and busy life as a working mum before you got into your full-time writing. I wondered how that life experience impacted on your writing.
2: Well, I think it has given me much more to write about. You know, they say write what you know, what you know about. Um, When I was 23, I started my first novel and I struggled and I struggled and Finally, when I realized I didn't have anything to say, anything that was that, you know, I was just burning to say, I just screeched to a stop (laughs) and let it go for several years. And it wasn't until after that women's history project that I started to find that I did have things I wanted to write about. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: that's great. Look, turning to Ames as a reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, I suspect that you've been a lifelong reader. Who are the people that you like to binge read, either in the past or right now?
2: Well, recently, I've been enjoying binge reading Jeffrey Archer's Clifton Chronicles. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, Jan Karen, the Mitchford series. This is an American author, I think, North or South uh, Carolina. It's it's called cozy fiction. I'd never heard that term before. Uh, it's really quite lovely about a um, Anglican priest who, a rector who, at the age of sixty, um, hasn't been married. And well, anyway, I shouldn't go into the story. Um, I would read the Maisie Dobbs series by um, Jacqueline Winspear um, and the Louise Penny mysteries. I would binge read those if I could, except that you know they they aren't all in print yet. So <laughs> I I try to pace myself and wait wait with those series um, until the paperback version comes out. Um, there are other writers I love. And so I all, I mean, basically I'm a binge reader in that I am always reading. One thing I love about airplane trips is the opportunity to read for hours and hours at a time in a row. Yes. Yes. So um, (laughs) Helen Simonson is someone I really like uh, her work. Tell me about Helen Simonson. I haven't really, I'm
1: not, haven't come across her. I don't think.
2: So she's British. Um and, and one of them is about World War One. Maybe they're both about World War One. Um uh, the titles. I mm, I they, so
1: they're historical. F- fiction. They are historical
2: yeah. fiction. Yeah. Helen Simonson. They're wonderful. Um, I I really like Margaret Drabble. I've loved her for years and she's still writing. Um yeah. <laughs> Barbara King um, American writer. I like her yes and uh, especially um uh anyway i really like her and Anne patchett is another author i really really enjoy
1: so you are quite you you read in the historical and mystery area that would be what your genres probably your primary genres are yes that would be right yep yeah yes um Circling around, we're sort of coming to the end of our time together. At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you'd change?
2: Um, I don't know that. Uh, I, I think I I kind of had to have the experiences that I had to be able to write as I have in the way I have. Um, so. Um, yeah, I think I think that's what I would say. I'm I'm just thrilled to be able to be at this point in my life where I get, yes. get to write novels. It's And so- is there
1: one thing that you've done perhaps more than any other that you would credit as the secret of your success?
2: Well, I think one thing is the depth of the research of the historical research that I go into. I really want my reader to feel like they are in, you know, physically, personally, mentally inhabiting the period that I'm writing about. So I love to introduce a lot of historically accurate, relevant details. I I love doing the research um, too. Uh, But the other thing I think that for me as a writer, that is the most helpful thing I've discovered is uh, Ernest Hemingway said it very well. Always stop for the day while you still know what will happen next. That way you don't face a blank page. (laughs) Yes,
1: (laughs) yes, yes. So tell me, what do you enjoy about writing and the creative process?
2: Well, yes. Yeah, so I mean, I I love making things, um, cooking, gardening, painting, that sort of thing. But I, I guess what I really love about writing a novel is that it's 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 something like having a child. Um, it's a very long pregnancy, in my experience, but <laughs> but it's like nurturing a child with love and then sending this beloved part of myself out into the world to share in hopes that people will be entertained and informed, comforted, sustained. So that's
1: another way of saying why I write. Yes. Oh, that's great. That really is. Fantastic. So what is next for Ames the writer? You mentioned this New book that you're working on
2: now. Tell us about that. What are your projects for the next 12 months? Well, I, I'm working on "Lemons in the Garden of Love" is the title, <clears throat> and it's a novel about <clears throat> excuse me a um, it's a novel about a graduate student in women's history at the University of Minnesota in 1977, who is looking for a topic for her dissertation, for her PhD. And on her way to the shotgun wedding of her sister, she goes to Smith College, where the Sophia Smith collection of manuscripts having to do with women's history, it's a very rich collection. She stops there and she finds all sorts of material, letters and cartoons and drawings and Um, diaries of a woman who turns out to be her great-grand-aunt, a woman she'd never heard of. And this woman founded the Birth Control League of Massachusetts in 1916. So this ends up being a novel about reproductive freedom and about the two waves of feminism in the United States in the 1910s and the 1970s. Uh, The story goes back and forth between the the perspective of the graduate student and the um, the woman who founded the birth control league, but her her she appears in the form of diaries and historical documents. You don't see her on the stage. You you read her documents. But she is a, a
1: true historical person, is she or is is this uh, she, person?
2: No, she well, she she is a, a tr- she's based on a true historical person, but I have fictionalized the you know details of her you know life, her sure. number of children, uh, her name, where she lives, that sort of thing. But but all of the historical document documents are are true, are accurate.
1: Love the title, it, I can see how it feeds back. Very closely into your work in the seventies, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly,
2: exactly. So this is my—that's my first novel that I hope to reconstitute and actually get published. Fantastic. So are
1: you still working with that same publisher now that you had for "Don't
2: Put the Boats Away"? Um, I don't know. I, I might very well. Um, th- there's a uh, University Press of Massachusetts that I'm going to submit. Lemons in the Garden of Love, too. They publish one piece of fiction, one novel a year, um, and the story mostly takes place in Massachusetts. I don't know that they will select my book. If they don't, then I will go with She Writes Press again. They've been a very interesting and supportive publisher.
1: That's
2: fantastic.
1: So, Ames, do you like to interact with your readers? And if so, where can they find you? Are you online or do you do many book club sort
2: of events? I, I, I do do book clubs. Um, I, I haven't done any by Skype yet. I've, I've, I've gone to book clubs and spoken with readers. Um, I, I have a website. Um, it's Ames Sheldon, A M E S S. H e l d o n dot com. I do some blogging there. Um, I'm on Facebook, Ames Sheldon author. I'm not tweeting or doing Instagram yet. Maybe, <laughs> maybe someday I will. Um, oh, and I'm on Amazon and Goodreads. Uh, there, there's a presence there too. But but the blogging is pretty much and, and the communication back and forth is is mostly through my website yes
1: oh that's great that really is and have you got a a hopeful publication date for lemons in the garden of love have you got a aim aim for when you want to
2: see that one out in the public world probably about 18 months from now so yes yeah yeah A, a year from next spring so that's spring of 2021 (laughs) <laughs> wow tell
1: us a little about
2: your t- typical writing day do you have
1: a particular discipline for the, the hours you write I do
2: I, I, I tend to spend uh, once I'm had my coffee and whatever from from nine in the morning to noon is my best writing time I'm, I'm always at my desk almost always at my desk during that time then after lunch is when I would do research uh, and marketing and um, exercise and, and, and other things um, like that. Uh, I try not to stop and look things up while I'm writing. I, I, I try to just write for the, the first three hours of my working day every day. Well, every weekday. Uh, absolutely. If you stop to research something, it's it's a real
1: rabbit hole, isn't it?
2: That's for sure. <laughs> It'd be fun, but it, it doesn't get the writing done. No, that's right. And
1: <clears throat> have you had good feedback from your readers? Do you find that you have made, quotes, friends from your books?
2: Yes. Uh, yes. In fact, it's it's been fun to actually reconnect with people that I haven't um, seen for a long time. Who um, find out about my books um, and and meeting all sorts of new people. I I go to I, I I go to scheduled readings. I go to book festivals and you know talk with people. Um, so it's definitely been expanding my world and uh, people really do seem to enjoy my novels. Um, they, they are a good read, both of them, I think.
1: It's fabulous, that really is. Look, it's been great talking today. It has been just quite inspiring to hear your story. I'm sure that a lot of people will take comfort from it. Um, And all the best with your future work. Thank
2: you so much, I appreciate it. It's been lovely to talk with you, Jenny. Thanks, Ames, bye now. Thank you, bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.